Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. of God's Word. So grab your Bibles or your devices, um, whatever you need. Turn to Luke chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen as well. But if you have a Bible with you, I'd recommend you read out of that. Or if you have a device, you can read out of that as well. Um, many people use the YouVersion Bible app, which is totally fine, and a good one that you can, you can read from there. I use the English Standard Version, just many translations of the Bible. This is the one that I like. Um, so just that's what I'm going to read out of if it's going to help you at all. We're going to begin a series today, an Advent series that we've simply called Fear Not. There are a number of instances in what we call the Christmas story of the birth of Jesus where angels appear and the first words out of their mouth are, do not be afraid or fear not. Now we're gonna do this in conjunction with the traditional um, Advent themes of hope, love, peace, joy, and light. And so we're gonna carry that theme throughout as we study through the Christmas story. So I wanna just invite you on that journey. We're gonna study passages today uh, that maybe you wanna read throughout the week. Please do that. Um, Study them, read them, contemplate them, pray over them. But the theme for this week is hope. That's the direction we're going uh, today. Again, this Advent is an ancient uh, Christian church tradition. And so this is part, we're just following along. We're standing on the shoulders of, of hundreds and thousands of people who have done this and many who are doing this very thing today, which for me is amazing that we're rooted and grounded in something that's not just, uh, not a fad, it's not waffling back and forth. This is ancient, ancient truth. So what I wanna do is I wanna teach now from Luke chapter one. We're gonna start in verse five, but if you need to just read verses one through four, I'll give you a summary of it. Luke writes this gospel account, the good news account, Um, but Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus. Uh, Luke didn't follow Jesus. He wasn't a disciple. Uh, He didn't go on journeys with Jesus, didn't witness any miracles of Jesus. Luke traveled with people who traveled with Jesus. So it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And so at some point, he is connected back to Jesus. But he writes this account of the life of Jesus. Luke is a doctor. uh, So Luke approaches this from a very logical perspective. But he's brilliant in his storytelling, just a very gifted writer. But what we learn in the first four verses is he wrote this specifically for a person to read, and he wants to convince them that what he's heard about Jesus is actually true, that it is true. And so to get the truth, what we learn that Luke has done is Luke has interviewed people. He's gathered eyewitness accounts. He's heard of some that have been passed along orally from from different uh, traditions. But then he's actually gotten together with some people, and he's interviewed them. You're gonna notice if you read through Luke that he knows details that he probably shouldn't know. It's because he's asked people who were actually there. I believe that he actually interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. I believe he got a lot of his information from her. He got a lot of his information uh, from Mark and then from Paul. Like he, he's got a lot of information from a lot of different sources, but he's compiled them and he's clear in verses one through four. It's so that we would be convinced that this is true, that what you hear about Jesus, these things are true. Now, Luke is unique in that he doesn't begin his gospel account with Jesus. He begins with the birth of a man called John that we call John the Baptist. That wasn't his denomination. There's not a John the Methodist who hated John the Baptist. There's none of that. 
John the Baptist and John the Methodist, not a thing. He was, he was a baptizer, John the baptizer. He's the one who, who actually baptized Jesus. This is who he is. But this is John. John is a relative of Jesus, which we learn later as we study the story of the birth and the conception of Jesus. Uh, but, but this is who he is. But what Luke does is Luke wants to tell us the story of John the Baptist because John the Baptist for him is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. How he gets from the prophets of the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus in the New Testament is through the story of John the Baptist. And so while this is an Advent series and we're, we're studying uh, the birth of, of Christ today, we're gonna study the birth of John the Baptist because it leads us into where Luke wants to take us. So we'll be in Luke chapter one. Uh, we've read through the core passage already. Jay and Jennifer read through that for us and I love Jay and Jennifer. They're a gift to our church. The way they love the Lord, love each other and their families and the way that they serve selflessly is an example and we love them. Uh, glad that they are part of, of our body. Uh, so they've already read the core of it. So I'm gonna, we're gonna put some context around what they just read. Then I wanna take us to Hebrews 10 at the end. So if you need to find that and hold your place there, you can. We're gonna get there uh, eventually. So here's Luke chapter one, verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, some of that matters to you. Some of it doesn't matter to you. I'm gonna make sure it all matters to all of us today. That's what I'm gonna to try to do. All right, so it's just one verse. One verse in uh, Luke 1, verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. So Luke, again, wants us to know that this actually happened. And so a number of his accounts, he's gonna anchor us in some kind of historical thing just so we know that we can either prove it or disprove it based on what he's telling us. So he's saying in the days of Herod. This is King Herod, we know him as Herod the Great. He's been given the name the King of Judea, not by the people of Judea, but by Rome. Rome has taken over. They're running a lot of what's happening here in Jerusalem, particularly now in Judea, and, and they're running all of it. They are the great Roman Empire. They're just they're kicking butt and taking names is what they're doing at this point. And so they've, they've uh, conquered this area and there's a leader in place named Herod who's not really from the traditional line of leaders there. He's kind of on the outside based to the way that his mama married somebody else. And so long story short, Rome really likes Herod. And so they try to please Herod so that Herod would please them. The problem is Rome and Israel, Rome and the Jews do not get along. Rome doesn't like what Israel represents. Israel doesn't like what Rome represents. Rome wants Israel just to declare Caesar is Lord. Um, Israel just wants to declare that God is Lord. And later to Christians would declare that Jesus is Lord. So there's always confrontation between uh, politics and the church. Not that that happens anymore. I'm just saying it used to happen uh, back in the Bible times. We're, we're way more advanced now. Uh, but this is, this is what's happening. Uh, this is Herod. He is the king. Herod loves to build lavish buildings. And to build his lavish building, he has to tax people to build his lavish buildings. And so he employs fishermen uh, or tax collectors to tax fishermen. It's a, whole, it's a whole thing that happens. But what he has done to try to earn the, the respect and love of the Jewish people is he's rebuilt the temple that was destroyed. The temple, the place that uh, Jews still to this day would go to worship in that time. He wants to rebuild it. But he does so with extreme ornamentation. He employs a number of priests to build the temple. So it is, it fits uh, biblical guidelines, but it's actually even more over the top than that. And one thing that he did is he has a golden eagle that he now placed at the entrance to the temple, an eagle being a representation of the Roman Empire. 
So there's this weird church and state thing that's happening and it's, it's kind of a mess. So in this day, as Herod is leading, it's a dark day for the people of God. Not only is Herod in charge under the rule of the Roman Empire, it's been 400 years since there have been any prophets that have spoken on behalf of God to his people. I mean, God regularly spoke through prophets in the Old Testament. And it's been 400 years since God said a thing through a new prophet. Sure, there have been some false prophets and fake guys who stood up saying they're speaking on behalf of God, but none, no real prophets have spoken. They haven't heard of God, from God in 400 years. But still, the rituals are continuing. Still, um, the Jews, the Israelites are following through on their feasts and they're offering sacrifices, but it's become a little less about worship and a little bit more about tradition for them. But if you're a Jew in Judea at this point, it's just, it's dark. It's just, it's not hopeful. There's not a lot of great things happening. So these are the days of King Herod, the king of Judea. Then Luke's gonna introduce us to a priest named Zechariah. Now a priest, uh, a priest is someone who interceded or spoke on behalf of God uh, really more traditionally. He took care of the temple. He offered sacrifices. He was the intercessor pretty much between the people of God and God himself. This is what a priest was. But priests were not elected. Priests didn't go to school and get a degree. They weren't ordained. Priests were priests simply because of their family line. They became priests. If you read the book of Exodus, uh, there's a man named Moses, um, also known as Charlton Heston. And Moses um, is called by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so uh, he tells Moses to, and Moses argues with God like you do, and he argues with God. And, and God, like any good parent, finally gets so frustrated, he just gives in. And Moses says, I can't go by myself. And God says, fine, then take, take Aaron, your brother, with you. Which for some of you would sound like more punishment than help. But anyway, Aaron's going with Moses. The role of Aaron is to be the mouthpiece for Moses. Moses says he can't speak well. So God's like, fine, I'll give you Aaron. He talks all the time. You can have Aaron. And so Aaron and Moses go and God uses them to set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Aaron then towards the end of the book of Exodus would be called the high priest or the first priest as they build the tabernacle, uh, Aaron is the first priest. And then it's decided by God then that all the sons or descendants of Aaron would be priests from that day forward. So we meet Zechariah and Zechariah is a priest because he is from that same lineage. We also learn that he is of the division of Abijah. Now in 1 Chronicles 24, which is just exhilarating reading, if you wanna read uh, 1 Chronicles 24, uh, David divides all of these priests into different divisions. Because as Aaron had sons and his sons had sons and their sons had sons and their sons had more sons, uh, there's just a bunch of rabbits everywhere now. And so uh, there were so many priests and not enough work to be done in the temple David had to create divisions. And so there are 24 divisions of priests to perform the priestly duties in the temple. And as it would, as that would happen now, um, each family, division of priests, that division actually means daily service. Each daily group of, of priests would get to serve in the tabernacle or in the temple one week, one full week, twice a year, Sabbath to Sabbath, twice a year performing a number of different rituals. Each of these divisions would have been 800 to 1,000 men. So we know a lot already just by studying the context and background that Zechariah is a priest from the line of Aaron and he is of the division of Abijah, which doesn't mean a whole lot for us in this moment, but he's basically saying he's of this one division. 
Now, names mean a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So here are a few names for you. Zechariah, his name means God remembers. God remembers. This is what his name means. So be important for us moving forward. Zechariah is a priest of the division of Abijah, and his name means God remembers. We continue reading in verse five, and Zechariah had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So now uh, Zechariah is from the priestly line, and what we learn also is that his wife is from a priestly line. Zechariah is the priest, and now essentially he's married a priest's daughter. I don't know how many of you have married a pastor's daughter. How many of you? Um, I have, and I, I, would, I would recommend it. I would recommend that. Um, most of the time. And like she would say, uh, she would recommend marrying a pastor sometimes. So we're married. Uh, This is the same situation. You've got a pastor and a pastor's daughter who have now been married together. Now for Zechariah as a priest, the requirement was if he was going to marry a wife, she had to be of complete Jewish heritage. Zechariah said, I'll see your complete Jewish heritage and I will marry a priest's daughter. I will go above and beyond. This is what he has done. So this is, this is this kind of power couple that's been married. Now, Elizabeth's name means that God is my oath or God is my promise. God remembers and God is my oath have now been married. So the first thing Luke wants us to see about this couple is they come from great stock. I mean, they've got great heritage, this couple. They really are. They're they're from, from a good family line. Their names represent who they are. This is a good couple. That's what he's introducing us to at this point. Now you continue reading into verse six and it gets even better. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Not only did they come from good stock, they were good people. I'm sure you've met some, um, some kids, some pastor's kids um, who, who aren't the best behaved kids. I'm saying you've met some of them. I'm not saying you've met mine. I'm saying you, maybe you've met some. But what, he's, what Luke is telling us, not only were they from good lineage, not only did they have good heritage, they were actually really good people. They were well-behaved. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were the right people and they did what was right. So before we move on, what would happen for many of us, if we're writing the story of scripture, these are the people who should get blessed by God, aren't they? These are the ones who should get whatever they want from God. These are the kinds of people where if I want something from God, I'm gonna ask them to pray for me instead of me praying on on behalf of myself because they seem closer to God. They seem like they're the ones who are gonna get God's attention. And so they seem like they would be the ones that God would provide for, that he would give whatever it was that they wanted. They were from good lineage and they were good people. But we're introduced to some tension here in verse seven. Luke begins in the ESV with, but... They had no child. Now, this is supposed to be a dramatic turn, which is lost a lot in the English. This is dramatic. They were people who were righteous, people who should be blessed by God, but there was a problem. They weren't blessed by God. But they had no child. Why? Because Elizabeth was barren. Because God is my promise. God is my oath was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, even in 2021, in our culture, barrenness, infertility, there's a weight that comes along with that, isn't there? If you've walked in seasons of that, if you're struggling with infertility now, there's, there's a weight and a burden and a pain that carries along with that. 
It hurts. It hurts to see other people with kids and to, to hear about births and those kinds of stories. It hurts and it continually hurts. But if you can imagine, it was even worse for people back in the New Testament and Old Testament for a couple of reasons. One, it was believed that barrenness was the result of sin somewhere in some family. So to be barren meant that you were punished by God. That was the belief. Barrenness was grounds for divorce. A husband could legally divorce his wife if she was barren. Another big reason was that they didn't have uh, retirement. They didn't have social security back then. They, didn't, they couldn't save money and put it away you know, for when they were done working and done uh, having income. The only way they had security later in life was if their kids took care of them. That was the only way a couple would have security. That was it. So to be barren meant that you were going to die alone. To be barren meant that there was no hope for any income in the future. To be barren meant that you probably had to work long beyond uh, your best working years. That's what it meant to be barren. There was no hope for you. There was no security coming. So you throw that in with the fact that it's a priest married to a priest's daughter. Can you imagine the rumors circulating around about them? It's, it's not that Zechariah earned his priesthood. He was given it because of his name. But can you imagine I mean, they seem like good people on the outside, but there must have been something going on on the inside that we just don't know about. Luke also tells us they were advanced in years. Some translation uh, says that Elizabeth was close to death. Most people would tell you they're over the age of 60. I'm not saying 60 is close to death. I'm just saying that's what some of the translations say there. But they were advanced in years. What this means is they were well beyond childbearing years. So physically, this just wasn't going to happen. Like physically, uh, Elizabeth's body, it was past the point of conception. She was not going to have a child, okay? So now, we need to use some of our sanctified imaginations. Just put ourselves here and think about the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Advanced in age, no children. And so for the first, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years of their marriage, they begged with God. They pleaded with God, give us a baby, give us a kid. Particularly, give us a son. We want a son. We gotta carry on this priestly line. We need someone to take care of us when we get older. And so uh, they prayed hard for that. But at some point, you just stop praying, don't you? Like at some point, when you aren't getting what you're praying for, you just stop. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth are just an old married couple. And Elizabeth probably works, she stays at home and she works in the field and she gathers the vegetables and the crops and, and she'd come in and, and she'd uh, make dinner. Nothing fancy, it's just the two of them. Zechariah would come home from work and he'd uh, take off his sandals and wanna put his feet up um, in his lazy boy, boy recliner. So he'd, he'd lay there and uh, she'd get them dinner because it's 4.30, so it's time to eat dinner. And s <laughs> No? Old people eat dinner early, that's what I'm saying. And so she, uh, it's time to eat dinner and so they get their dinner ready and I mean, they've been married for so long that it's not that they don't sit at the table anymore, they sit at their chairs in front of the TV, you know what I mean? Because Jeopardy's on so they've got to watch Jeopardy. And then after Jeopardy, it's Wheel of Fortune. So they've got to watch all that. And then, and then, you know, it's probably bedtime. Um, but they're there and they pull the blankets up over their knees, the ones that she knitted for them. And so they pull them up over their knees. And um, at this point, I mean, what, what are they going to talk about? I mean, there's no, they're not talking about their kids. They're not talking about grandkids. They're 
They're probably complaining about the next door neighbor's kids who are always on their lawn, and so they're complaining about that, and that is happening. Um, I mean, sure, in years past, they would sit there and just, I mean, think about what it would be like if they had a little baby boy and what that would be like in their home and, and what they would do, what they would name him, and they had all those conversations, but as years went on, they just stopped, right? And so now every day is the same. There's no excitement, nothing changes. They're just waiting until they die. That's all they're doing. There's hopelessness in culture because of King Herod and in their own home and their own hearts. There's no hope. They've lost it. And so they just exist now. I mean, sure, they, they do all the right things and they still go to the temple and pray and they go to the hours of prayer and, and they do all that. And Zechariah's still performing his priestly duties and they're doing all that, but there's no point now in even praying for a child because that ship has sailed. So they don't talk about it anymore. There's really just nothing left. This is, this is kind of who they are for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And then Luke, after setting that stage now, moves us into this moment of their lives in verse eight. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. So you've got these divisions, 24 of them, so twice a year for a week, they would be summoned to Jerusalem. Zechariah and Elizabeth live in Judea down in the south and they would travel up to the temple in Jerusalem or he would, Zechariah would, and he would for a week. Sabbath to Sabbath would be there to perform duties. You've got a thousand men there to perform duties and each day there's maybe three or four things they have to do. Maybe. And so literally, Zechariah is just going to sit there and twiddle his thumbs. That's all he's doing. But he's, he's, they've been called to be on duty. It's their turn, verse nine. And according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, as fate would have it, and coincidentally, and by chance, at this moment, this was the time that Zechariah's name gets pulled. Now, I don't know if they're drawing straws or rolling dice. We're not real sure what casting lots mean, but it's some kind of thing of chance. And what Luke is telling us that at this point in time, Zechariah's name gets called. A thousand men, two weeks for a year. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. In fact, many priests would go their whole lives and never have this experience. But he gets this experience and it's drawn um, by drawing of lots. Proverbs 16, 33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, we can play all the games we want to, but God's in control. And if it's pulling straws, God makes sure that Zechariah got the right straw. If it's rolling dice, God made sure that the numbers landed on Zechariah's name. If it's drawing names out of a hat, God made sure the paper pulled out had Zechariah's name on it. God's in charge of this. Now, Zechariah is chosen. Remember, his life is just the same. And he dreaded going for this week because he knew he, was, there was, he wasn't gonna do anything. She's gonna sit there, but something happens in this day. God has determined something to happen. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of people were praying 
outside at the hour of incense. So the hour of incense is also called the hour of prayer. Back in the Old Testament, incense is related to prayer because when you light the incense, smoke billows up to the heavens like our prayers do. And so incense has this great representation of God. It's why we say that our worship, it's a sweet smelling uh, flavor or savor to the Lord because of this act of incense. So there were two hours of incense. One would have been in the morning about nine o'clock and then one about three o'clock in the afternoon, and it always preceded sacrifice. So it's always connected with sacrifice. And when this would happen, uh, the priest would go in for this incense, to light the incense, and everybody in the courts then would bow down. So here's, I'm gonna give you a picture here of the temple. Uh, this is the temple. Herod would have built what's, what's called the temple mount all around it. This is sitting on top of that temple. The holy, of, the holy place that you see up there on the top, uh, your left, uh, the top left up there, would have been about three quarters the size of a football field. So it's not just a room. Like I always pictured it like a living room. It's no, it's not. It's huge. This is the, uh, the holy place. Now you see all the things that are happening here. You've got the uh, court of the Gentiles is only where the Gentiles could go. Those who weren't Jews couldn't come inside. Then you got the women's courtyard. So all the Jewish men and women could go into the women's courtyard. Then the men could go to certain places. And then beyond that wall is what's called the priest's courtyard. All the Jews, uh, men could be in there. And then the priest had a specific place in there. You see here right in the middle of the screen is a thing called altar. That is where they would sac make the sacrifices of the altar. It's where uh, there would be burning embers. Now, a priest would come in and he would actually take the fire from there and he would take it into the holy place. We can go to the next slide, Ray. Now, here, here's the holy place zoomed in. Now, on the right there, uh, that door is a curtain. It's the first veil, which separates kind of the courtyard from the holy place. Then inside of that, number three is the veil. This is about 18 inches to two feet thick um, of a curtain or veil that you just can't get through. This is what separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the presence of God resided. Now, just outside of that veil, number four right there, that is the altar of incense. It's where this priest uh, would put the cauldron of incense and this eternal flame would light it and the fragrance would make its way up. And the belief was that this fragrance of the incense would make its way in through the curtain and into the presence of God, that God would hear the prayers of his people. Now, as the priest begins this, there'd be another priest who rings bells. And as that would happen, everybody in the courtyard would then bow prostrate before the Lord and put your hands together, pinkies to pinky like this. And they would extend their arms like this, bowed before the Lord for the hour of incense, the hour of prayer. It wasn't for a full hour, it was on that hour, so at nine o'clock. But this is what they would do. And the belief for a Jew, the way that you uh, move and shape your body determines your worship. So this is an expression of both offering and receiving from the Lord at this time, at this hour of prayer or hour of incense. So what's happening here in verse 10 is, um, Zechariah has made his way in. Now everybody in the courtyard is now bowing and praying before the Lord. The most common prayer during the hour of prayer was a prayer that God would redeem and visit his people through the salvation of the Messiah. This is how every hour of prayer begins, is with this prayer that God would save, that God would finally send the Messiah. So the stage is set. Once in a lifetime opportunity, Zechariah is in there, 
mean, he can't call and text his wife to tell her what's happened. She still has no idea. But he's in, so he makes his way in. And then verse 11 of Luke chapter one. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, particularly this time of year, um, we like to picture angels as chubby little babies in their cloth diapers. Um, At no point does a chubby little baby in a cloth diaper make me tremble and fearful. So if if, if that's the picture you have of some little baby just waiting, Zechariah's like, oh! The reason he's fearful is because this is a warrior. Angels are warriors. I mean, they're just, they're ripped. They're just warriors. Like they're, they're ready to fight on behalf of God is who they are. They're warriors. And so they're standing before Zechariah. Zechariah's never done this before. And no priest has been like, dude, when you get in there, it's the craziest thing. This angel appears. Like no one's told him that before. So he doesn't know what to expect. And this happens and he's fearful. Fear falls upon him, verse 13. But the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why? For your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, here, I think, is where Zechariah just completely stopped listening. Any of you dads remember the first time when your wife told you that you were having a baby? You remember how you couldn't hear anything at all? You didn't hear anything after that. And the, the world just kind of stopped. Depending on, on kind of your relationship situation and financial situation, depend, that, that determined how you felt about the news that you were just given. Um, but either way, every, you know everything's about to change at this moment. But what's happened now is that this man is well beyond childbearing age. And his wife, like they, they can't conceive. Like this is, he's, he's given up on that. And so he hears from the angel, your prayer has been heard. You're gonna have a child and his name will be John. So I think at this point, I'll give you evidence later, that I think, I think Zechariah completely stopped listening at this point. All he heard was, you're having a baby, it's a boy. I think that's all he heard. Now, the name John means God is gracious. God remembers, and God is my oath, had a baby, and his name is God is gracious. And gracious has nothing to do with heritage and has nothing to do with good behavior. This has purely everything to do with the goodness of God. The angel is saying is you haven't earned this. It isn't because of your family line. It's simply because God is gracious. His name is John. But the angel Gabriel continues, and I don't think Zechariah heard any of this. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So I'm not sure Zechariah is comprehending what's happening, but you and I have the benefit of not being alarmed by what just happened. So these verses are telling Zechariah, this isn't about your baby. This is about the saving of the world. I think one reason why you and I give up on hope is because we're, I don't know that we are capable to hope for what God can actually give us. 
I don't know that our finite human minds are even capable of dreaming about the goodness of God, of how good he actually is. So I think in our little petty hopes that we think are big things, when those things are met or those things are squashed, we don't even have the ability outside of the spirit to even think about something bigger than that. And so when Zechariah hears, I'm having a baby, he doesn't even factor in the fact that God's like, oh no, no, but this baby's different. This baby's gonna tell the world about the Messiah. This baby comes first and then the Messiah comes. But I don't think we even know how to, how to do that. It's why the things that you're praying for your marriage, you don't even know what God's capable of. You know he can do more than whatever you're asking him to do. Whatever you're asking him to help restore and redeem, you know he's better than that. You know he can heal that and he can put it all back together, but he can do more than just that. He's working something that's not just about your pithy little prayer, something about that God's working in the grand scheme of the universe. But I don't even know that we can even comprehend that. So Gabriel tells Zechariah some news that I'm not sure Zechariah is even able to process. And we learned that here in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this? How shall I know my wife is pregnant? I'll give you one guess, Zechariah. For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I think what he's actually asking is, well, how, how do I know I can believe you? Because I've prayed for this for 40 years and you haven't said yes one time. How do I know you're being honest? How do I know you're not setting me up for disappointment again? How do I know I can trust you? How do I know? You, you do know that we're well beyond childbearing years. You do know that physically there's no possible way that my wife could get pregnant and carry a baby. And even if she does, that baby's not gonna make it. That's what he's saying. How, how do I know? Because I tried trusting in you. I tried the hope thing before and you let me down. Why is this different? That's what he's asking, isn't it? We've been down this road and I'm not about to get my hopes up again just to have them crushed because we've had the false alarms and I'm not doing that again. I'm not, I'm not gonna have my hopes up that you can fix that and redeem that and restore that because you haven't for 40 years. Why now? Why now? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. You wanna know why you can trust me? Because I stand in the presence of God and God sent me to speak this to you and to bring you this good news. I didn't make this up. I'm not drunk. This is for real. You're not just seeing things. I'm here. I'm Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, and I stand in the presence of God. Now behold, verse 20, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, if you're like me, that feels a little harsh, doesn't it? Because those are fair questions I think Zechariah is asking. Well, how do I know you're not tricking me again? And in fact, later on, you're gonna find that an angel tells Mary that she's pregnant and Mary says, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel doesn't make her mute. She gets to talk and write songs. But Zechariah gets punished. Like it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right, but you know how you get a text message from a friend and you have to, you have to try to figure out what the emotion is behind the text message? Like when they say, K, mm-mm, don't K me. You give me a complete sentence. Well, the text is the same way. We don't really know exactly the emotion behind it, but we can, we can put some pieces together of what's happening here. When 
Zechariah would have begun that prayer in the temple, that prayer at the hour of incense. His prayer would have begun with a line like this, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how his prayer would have begun. I mean, seconds earlier. And Zechariah would have probably said that prayer thousands of times, countless times as a priest. But now he's just saying it out of rote memory, the same way that you and I sing songs just because the words are on the screen, like Anchorman, we have to say whatever on the teleprompter. This is what's happening here. But you know who Abraham is? Abraham was given a promise by God that he would have a son. And then Abraham and his wife were, quote me, advanced in years. And they still hadn't had a son. So they concoct a plan where Abraham's gonna sleep with his, with his servant and then she's gonna give birth to a son and that happens and God says, no, 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 that wasn't my plan. You can trust me with my plan. Years progress and then miraculously Abraham and Sarah conceive a son. You know what that son's name is? Isaac. In the very prayer that Zechariah just prayed, what he has declared is, I believe you can make the barren fertile. I believe that even advanced in years, it is an obstacle for you. I believe I've seen you do it before. In his very prayer, he just prayed the words about the very same situation. You wanna know why Gabriel's mad? Because he realizes at that moment, Zechariah, you're just saying words. And you're doing the work and you're showing up and you're offering sacrifices and you're doing the incense and you've got this moment. But even then, you don't even pay attention to what you're saying. Do you know what you're saying? In calling him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what you're saying is that there's nothing that's impossible for God. That's what you're saying. And how many of us just sit in these seats and sing these songs and you don't believe it? You're just saying it. You begin your prayers with God. You know what you're saying? What you're saying is you're the king. You do whatever you wanna do. And at the same time, we like Zechariah are like, Psh. No, you don't. Why is there discipline? Well, because he was just playing the game. He was working, but he wasn't worshiping. In his hopelessness, Zechariah had lost sight of the patterns of God. This is what God does. This is who he is. He's a miracle worker. This is what he does. Then he's given this punishment, this discipline of silence, which is ironic because the first priest, Aaron, was called a priest because he spoke on behalf of Moses. What do priests do? Priests talk. So in this silence, you know what happened? You know what happened for Zechariah? He couldn't do his work anymore. He was removed from being able to do the work. He had to be quiet. He couldn't fake it. He couldn't say all the right things and sing all the right songs. He just had to sit there and he had to think and he had to listen. And it had been a long time since Zechariah listened to God. He had done a lot of the talking and then he just shut God off. And now he has to listen. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Like, what's going on in there, dude? They were wondering about his delay in the temple and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. Now, he's not schooled in sign language, so who knows what he's doing? It's probably like playing charades with your six-year-old. You have no idea what's happening. You're just guessing things. 
And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. But this is different. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Do you know how a wife conceives a child? You can ask Daryl, he'll tell you later. (laughs) What I'm saying is when he got home, that night wasn't like every other night for the past 20 years. And I don't mean to be crass about it, but what I'm saying is something changed in him. Something happened. And he went home, somehow he told his wife, and they celebrated. And she conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And Elizabeth rejoices and worships. So now you've got nine months of silence for Zechariah where he can't do what he thought he was supposed to be doing. But what's been removed from him is the ability to just play the game and just show up and just go through the routine. Now he has to to think about what's happening. He has to work hard to say something. He has to process all of it. He can't just fake it at this point. So the question for us this morning is, what do you do when our hope grows cold? What do you do? What do you do when you can't hope anymore? What do you do when you're exhausted from hoping? And even more seriously, what do you do when God just keeps disappointing you? I don't think the do not fear was about Gabriel being a warrior. I think Zechariah was afraid to hope. I think he was scared to hope again because he had tried that before. It just led to disappointment and frustration. He'd rather not go down that road. And so he shut that part of his heart off. He shut those dreams off and it's just easier. So what do we do? Well, we move on, don't we? We move on to something else and we stop thinking about it and stop talking about it, or at least we pretend we stop thinking about it and talking about it. And Zechariah didn't run to anything immoral. Zechariah ran, he ran to working, to serving God. He devoted himself to serving God, but he did so without actually believing him. So he poured himself into his work. He kept being faithful because it's easier for us to throw ourselves into something than to face our pain. It takes real courage to hope. At least as you get older, it does, doesn't it? Because when you're a kid, you hope for everything. When you're a kid, you have big dreams about what you're gonna be and how you're gonna fly to the moon and how you're gonna make your own pizza restaurant where you can eat pizza every day for the rest of your life and how you're gonna have 75 different puppies and they're always gonna be puppies. And like You can dream about everything. You dream about this, your spouse and what she's gonna look like and he's gonna look like and... and He'll never age, and if he does, he'll just age like Kevin Costner, and that's fine, and so. But as you get older, that starts to fade, doesn't it, because reality hits. So what do we do? How, how do we hope again? Well, I think we learn a lot through Zechariah's prayer. I think we have to rebuild our hope, and there are two ways to rebuild hope. One, we remember our past, And secondly, we reframe the present. Zechariah's been quiet for nine months. He's had to learn a lot and listen and process a ton. A number of years ago, um, God removed me from ministry. Um, 
of my own doing. And in that season, I had a season to really process what I was and what God had called me to be and to do. And I had to decide if I was gonna be a pastor because I got paid to be a pastor, if I was gonna be a pastor because God called me to be a pastor. Zechariah has this moment where he can't play the game, he can't fake it, he can't just busy himself to distract himself, he really has to deal with some stuff and by the grace of God, he does. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 67. Uh, The baby is born, and it's the eighth day, so it's the day of circumcision, and so at this day now, it's when the baby will be traditionally named, so they asked Elizabeth, what are you gonna name the baby? And Elizabeth says, oh, well, we're gonna name the baby John. And everybody around says, John? Like, is that even a name? Might as well just name him Apple or Maverick. I mean, what are, you, what are we doing? No offense if you're a Maverick, but I'm just saying, he's it's like, is that, that's not a family name because back then you would always name a family name, which used to be Zechariah the third or second or whatever. And so then they all turn to Zechariah who can't talk. Well, what do you think? And Zechariah gets something to write on and he writes, his name will be John. And they're floored. And they think there must be something about, special about this baby. And he's given his voice back. And in verse 67, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying, and he remembers the past, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know what Zechariah does? He finally remembered the past. He remembered what God had said, remembered the promises of the past and the prophecies of the past. And I think there's a moment that dawned on Zechariah when he realized, when Gabriel said, the Lord has heard your prayer, it wasn't the prayer from years ago. It was the same prayer he was praying with the people outside in the courtyard. Send us the Messiah. Send us a redeemer. That's the prayer that God heard. And God's gonna do it through Zechariah's boy. So he remembers the past and then watch how he reframes the present in verse 76. So picture what's happening. A room full of people and family members disgusted by the name they chose. Zechariah gives this great proclamation. This child is different. And then he turns and he looks at the sweet little baby, John the Baptist. And this is, this is before like camel hair eating bugs, John the Baptist. So he's still pretty innocent. And he looked at this sweet baby and he says, and you, my child, you will be called the prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He reframes the present. I've got this baby in front of me. But notice he not once says, you've given me the desire of my heart, God. You you finally come through for me. Zechariah sees the big story and he says, and you, child, you will declare the Messiah has come. It's beautiful what happened in Zechariah. From the frustration and anger of the beginning of the chapter to, I can't believe this is happening. 
And he's using my kid to do it. So what do we do? Like how, how, do we, how, do we, how do we remember our past and reframe our present? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not by playing church. It's not by being a good church person. It's not by showing up and going through the routine. It's not it. It's not what God wants. Psalm 51, David says, you don't want sacrifices or I would bring that. You don't want a burnt offering or I would give that to you. But Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You wanna know what God wants? You wanna, you wanna know how to get that back, how to get hope back? Just be honest with God. Be honest with him. Tell him he's broken your heart. Tell him it hurts. Tell him you're not sure you can trust him. Tell him you're not sure you want to anymore because you tried and he just keeps disappointing you. He, he wants your honesty. He wants your heart broken before him. Give him that. Quit playing the games. Quit saying all the churchy things. Quit saying Lord 45 times in your prayer. Just tell him how you feel. Just tell him. Tell him you're angry. Tell him you're frustrated. Tell him you can't believe he duped you again. Tell him. Tell him he's broken your heart and he's broken your spirit. Tell him it hurts to be you. It hurts to be here. It's not fair. I feel like I've done everything right and you haven't come through for me. Why? Tell him. Tell him that. I grew up in a home with five younger sisters, so I learned pretty quickly, just squash the drama. Like, I don't engage in confrontation. I don't engage in fighting because I, I don't wanna deal with all the repercussions of it. I learned that pretty early in life. And so I learned that all I have to do is say I'm sorry and everything goes away. Even if I don't mean it, I just have to say it. Because if I say I'm sorry, then they stop, right? That's, that's what's happened. So I built my life around this premise and then I got married. And I got married to one of the most amazing women in the world, but who comes from a family where they just say everything and they have confrontations in front of visitors. And I come from a home where you, you don't fight or you do, but only behind closed doors so everybody's gonna hear you in the house, but not in front of people. And so for most of our marriage, I would not fight with my wife. I would not do it. I wouldn't. I hated it. I hate fighting. And so I would lie. And I would say, I'm sorry, even though I wasn't sorry. And I would take blame for things that weren't mine to take the blame for. Not that they were hers, but I would, I would do that. You know, the past few years, what I've learned is, and what Meredith has even said to me is, but when you fight, I actually get all of you. Like, when you fight with me, I get what you actually think. When you fight with me, you're honest. It's like, you want me to be honest? I thought you wanted me to say what you wanted me to say. So no, but when, when that happens, there's an intimacy that's created with us that's not there when you fake it. And I was like, this makes zero sense to me but it's true. And what I realize is I do it with the Lord too. When I'm honest with him, I feel so close to him. When I just yell at him and I scream in the car and I journal that I can't take it and I don't like it and why is it happening like this and why haven't you come through yet? I feel the Lord saying, I know, I know. I know you can trust me, I'm with you. But the problem for us in the South is we don't do it. We're like, oh, gracious God, high and mighty and lifted up. Lord, today I just wanna say thank you. 
and I'm not angry at all. And thank you for the smile you've given me. And we're never like, God, this is awful. I can't pay my bills again this month. Where are you? My marriage is falling apart and you're nowhere to be found. I have to go bail my kids out of prison again. What are you doing? Isn't that true? Isn't that how you really feel? Then tell him. Tell him. In that same temple, what's beautiful is this from Hebrews chapter 10. There's that veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And that veil, um, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom, split wide open into the presence of God. And so while God desires a broken and a contrite heart, here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, not by our heritage, not by our good behavior, but by God is gracious. And by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, meaning Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, not a fake heart, not a churchy heart, not a thee and a thy and a thou heart, a true heart. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You wanna know why you can be honest with God? Why you can draw near with a true heart? Because he's not going anywhere. He's not leaving you. Say what you need to say. He's not going anywhere. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, where it's just cries and anger and complaining. It's a book of the Bible devoted to that. Don't you think God can take it? He can take it. He wants to hear your heart. Tell him. Tell him it's not fair. He's not going anywhere. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Look at your past. And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You wanna know why this matters, what you're doing here today? Because there are some of us here today who are having a hard time believing that God is who he says he is. And there are some of us today who would say, no, 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 I know that he is because he did it for me yesterday and he did it for my marriage two years ago. That's why. And so in this gathering, because we, when we gather together, you get to say to the doubter, you don't have to doubt, I've got strength for you today. And when we gather, you can be honest and true assurance of faith. So today I'm asking you, be honest with God and be honest with each other. Let's stop faking all of it. Stop the mass, stop it. It's just gonna lead you to a rote, routine faith like Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's hope for you and for me today. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes I'm gonna have the, alt, uh, the elders and their spouses, if they can, and staff even to come forward and just stand up here at the altar. I don't know where you find yourself today. 
I don't know if you're in a season where you can trust God with everything that you have or if you're just really, you're really questioning him today. Because you've tried and you've tried and you begged and you've pleaded and he just hasn't come through. If you're here today and in complete honesty, you would say, yeah, I, I'm with Zechariah. I don't know that I can believe it today. Would you just raise your hand in honesty and say, I don't know if I can believe it today. I want to, I really do want to. I'm just not sure that he's given me enough evidence today. Be honest, yes, praise the Lord. We've got days like that. Is there anyone here today who by a show of hands would say, no, I'm, I'm confident today. I'm confident that God is who he says he is and he's proven it to me over and over. And you raise your hand and say, yes, yes, I declare today. Praise the Lord. I'm gonna pray and if, if you need somebody to pray with you, like you need to come forward and just be completely honest. I need you to know the people up here today have seen the depths of my soul and you can trust them. In full assurance, you can trust them. If you just need to come and bow at this altar and just pray before the Lord and just cry out to him, I'm gonna encourage you to do it today. Don't wait. Don't hold on to it. Come today. If you're here today and you don't even know Jesus, you don't have a hope that goes on and on. You don't have that, but your hope is in a spouse. Your hope is in a future. Your hope is in kids or in finances. And what you're learning is the more you put your hope in those things, the more you're disappointed. I wanna tell you today, there's a hope that you can find in Jesus that ultimately will not disappoint you. And all it takes is for you to declare that you're a sinner You're broken. You don't have it figured out. You've gone against the plan of God and that you need him to save you and to rescue you. And you believe he's gonna rescue you through the finished work of Jesus, that his son died on the cross to pay the debt that separated you from God. And you can walk in that new life. If you wanna do that today, you can come forward and talk to us. I wanna encourage you to do that. So I'm gonna pray. If If you need to come forward, I want us to, we want us to be a place that's honest about this. There's no shame in this. There's victory and freedom in this today. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for stories of men like Zechariah and Elizabeth. I thank you for um, their honest struggle and questioning because it allows us to do the same. And God, there are people in this room, you know, you know their hearts, you know the things they really feel. So God, I, I just, I ask that you meet them in it. That like you did to me, you prove that you're faithful. You prove that you're present. And it was never about their good behavior, about their heritage. It's always been about them and you love them. So God, would you meet them there today? God, give them courage to be honest. Give them courage to be vulnerable. Give them courage to vent and lament and yell and cry out to you today. If there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, I pray through the power of your spirit that you would save them, that you would rescue them from the power of darkness and bring them into the light of your glorious son today. God, I thank you that you have shoulders big enough to bear our burdens. That in our crying out, there's an intimacy to be found. So God, renew, reignite hope in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.